Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhered Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Caleb, the dry apologist. We're talking about Christianity and classical theism. So what's up, Caleb? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm pumped. I'm excited for this conversation. It's a nice early Saturday morning. Um, so if you're new or you're trying to figure out what's going on here today, what we're going to talk about is um, the idea of classical theism and then looking at like specific aspects of like Christian theology. So like looking at things like the incarnation or God creating divine impassibility, these things and how you can kind of make sense of them in light of like Christian theism. So before we get into like maybe like the heavy stuff, Caleb, maybe you want to define like what classical theism is just so that we know what we're talking about um, for here. Yeah, and I just want to clarify, I'm by no means like a scholar on this. I'm just somebody who enjoys studying these things, although I do read, try to read the scholarship on it. But yeah, classical theism is sort of considered the older traditional notion of theism, sort of understood, especially in light of Greek philosophy. So it would be understanding that God is, you know, a necessary omni-being, but that he's also um, timeless, immutable, impassable, and you know, entirely simple. So those extra attributes um, that were definitely held for a while within Christian theology, but in the last century or so have been more critiqued as being maybe not implausible or maybe not um, so in line with the biblical narrative and such. So it's become more controversial whether uh, people should hold to that view of God. So just to like get these attributes drilled down. So timelessness is the idea that God exists like outside of time. He's not like he doesn't like go through like a duration of time. There's no like succession in God. Um, Impassibility is like the idea that like God can't be like affected. Like he can't be like heard or like experience emotions. Um, And it's immutability. So I always get impassibility and immutability like mixed up. Um, So maybe you want to clarify a little bit. And then simplicity is the idea that like God has no parts. Um, All his thing, all his attributes and actions are identical to himself. Like his knowledge is the same as his power in a sense. So is that right, Caleb? Yeah. Yeah. So to clarify on impassibility, it's not um, that God doesn't have emotions though at all. It's that he isn't affected. So you were right on that point. Like he could have an unchanging like emotion of happiness if we consider like that an emotion. It's just, he doesn't like become sad or become, you know, angry. Like it's, it's just one unchanging, you know, unaffected emotional state. And then immutability would mean He's not affected by something outside of him. So immutability and impassibility are, you know, very similar. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, let's dive right into this. Um, so the first thing I'd love to talk about is like how we can make sense of classical theism in light of the incarnation. This is what we were like talking about. What got me interested in having you on just to like talk about this more. Um, this idea is so, like in Christian theism, we have this idea of the incarnation, incarnation where the son, a member of the Trinity, um, takes the human flesh and the person of Jesus Christ. And in the incarnation, um, the son is, Jesus is crucified, um, he suffers, he dies, um, rises again. There's our gospel story. And one of the worries about like how we can make sense of this in light of classical theism is that how can we have like a God who like suffers in a sense? Um, So like some people might say like, well, it looks like under the incarnation, the son, the second person in the Trinity um, suffers on the cross um, and experiences emotions perhaps. And obviously under classical theism, this change in like from going from like not suffering to suffering or a change in emotions doesn't seem like something that you can like accept under classical theism. So how would you make sense of this, Caleb? Yeah, so at the incarnation, I think it helps to distinguish between the divine nature and the human nature. So in traditional Christology, um, there's the notion of the hypostatic union that the divine nature causally unites itself with the human nature. So the the second person of the Trinity, which is Christ, 
um, has both the divine nature and a human nature. So the divine nature doesn't undergo any changes, but the human nature undergoes changes. So I think that that helps um, relieve a lot of the tension there that um, between yeah, the conflict that you mentioned. Yeah. So one of the things we talked about this that I think comes from this is the idea of like the two sons worry, um, where we look at like the incarnation, like if we like use a story kind of like what you're bringing forward, Caleb, where we get to the idea of like, well, is there two persons then in the incarnation, like the divine and like the human? Because in one sense, if you look at the cross, maybe like the human part of Jesus suffers, but the divine part doesn't suffer, which seems like maybe we're talking about two persons and, you know, then we're like heresy maybe. Like, so like, how would you kind of like address that worry? Right. Yeah. So traditional Christology, which I want to embrace, doesn't want to say that there are two persons within the incarnation or two sons. Rather, it's the one personhood, the second person of the Trinity that has two natures. So there are two natures, two minds, two wills, but one person. And that's, of course, um, hard to grasp in some ways. But yeah, the two sons worry. So like Ryan Mullins has um, written on this. And I'm not saying I have a perfect resolution on how to respond to it, but the the worry is that if we just define a person as a rational mind or something like that, and then Christ has you know two minds, then it seems like he's two persons. But I would suggest that we shouldn't define person as a rational mind, but something more like um, an individual or an agent that um, partakes of a rational mind or has a rational mind. So Christ can be one individual that has two minds. So the, the humanity of Christ, I would argue, can't exist without the hypostatic union. So the worry with the two sons is, or the, the two sons worry is about, well, could the humanity of Christ existed as a, a human being if um, the son had never become incarnate? And if you say yes, then it seems like, well, then it seems like he's a, a second person independent of the incarnation. But I would argue that the incarnation is what causally uh, brings about the humanity of Christ. So there is, it actually isn't metaphysically possible for there to have been a, a human um, Jesus without the incarnation. So uh, hopefully that kind of makes sense, but it definitely is, you know, um, a difficult uh, issue to wrap one mind. And there are other ways to, to address the concern. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I definitely, like, I hope for everyone listening, like you see this conversation as like exploratory. We're looking at different ideas rather than like trying to get like the answer or like solving everything and like putting all this to bed for the rest of eternity. Um, so one thing I'm thinking about then, Caleb, as you're talking is like, so when Jesus is like doing his earthly ministry, turning water to wine, healing the sick, these things, would you say then that Jesus has two minds? Like there's a divine person and like the human, like the divine mind and like the human mind as he's walking around and doing this ministry? Yeah, so I would say, yeah, the divine nature has, you know, the divine mind, which the second person of the Trinity also shares in. But then Jesus, as uh, the human nature, um, or the human nature of, you know, Christ, the second person, has its own human mind as well. And that's going to be traditional Christology. Otherwise, it's going to be um, Apollinarianism, where you, where Jesus has a divine mind, or, you know, another... Um, considered heresy where you know you don't have a distinction between the human nature and the divine nature so yeah we're going to say the second person of the trinity has two minds one divine and one human i wonder then caleb like and like i'm only like 21 haven't studied these things in depth at all but for me like when i've read the new testament i've always just assumed like there was one mind um when reading just a natural like i haven't like done like in-depth exegesis i don't know biblical greek or anything like this like for my natural reading i've always assumed that like 
Jesus had one mind. So would you say like you could get like the idea of like this divine and human mind from the biblical data, or is it something that you just kind of wrestle with when you have like teachings of the church um, and, cla and classical theism and stuff like this? Yeah. So I don't know if it's something you can explicitly get from the biblical data because it's, we're looking at the person or the, the humanity of Jesus in the text. And yeah, I mean, as a human being, he has one human mind. So anytime Jesus is talking or reflecting and such, we're getting, you know, his, um, window into his human mind but if we think he also has a divine nature you know like it indicates like at the beginning of john's gospel the word was made flesh but he didn't give up his divine nature he's still united to it well i mean the divine nature has to have a divine mind as well you know the second person of the trinity is the same nature as god the father god the holy spirit and they have a mind but they're not um you know the mind of jesus so there is a distinction already so um i think it at least is um, a plausible deduction that Jesus doesn't give up his divine mind, but then he clearly has a distinct human mind. So it does seem to plausibly follow to me, at least that he would then have two minds, but the humanity of Jesus has the one human mind. It's just that he doesn't lose that. The second person of the Trinity though, doesn't lose the divine mind and taking on a human mind. Do you think this could resolve like, um, maybe issues like like one of the very common things brought up um, against like the idea of like Christ being divine is this idea like in certain parts of the gospel like Jesus like can't do miracles because like they don't have faith um, or things like this or saying things like he doesn't know like what the Father knows. Um, so you, do you think that could resolve certain things? We could say well that's the human mind we're talking about here, um, and point maybe like other instances where he knows things that he probably shouldn't know, saying like that's the divine mind. Do you think that could help there? Yeah, I think that, it, the, yeah, this um, view of two natures, I think it does help. So, yeah, there are some instances in the gospel where Jesus seems to imply that he doesn't know some things. And if we say, well, that's the human nature that lacks that knowledge because, you know, the, the divine nature has chosen not to reveal it because he's fully human. So he does have limitations in his human nature. Yeah, to me, that, that resolves tension. Now, there is some further debate whether or not that's the... Um, best resolution that I mean I, I find that resolution pretty plausible yeah okay thanks that's great anything else Caleb you want to say with regards to the incarnation before we move on to our next topic no I would say definitely though if people haven't um, looked into Tim Paul I think he's really good on um, explaining this traditional Christology and he's done a lot of um, talks and such so I would definitely recommend his work okay that's great thank you um, so as we continue this conversation, which I see as like exploratory, looking at different views of like Christianity in um, classical theism, one of the things I'd love to talk about is like the idea of like um, the emotions of God in the Bible or the apparent emotions. So like under classical theism, it seems like God like can't go in like changes of like emotional states. So we have questions then, especially with regards to the Old Testament, where there's certain passages where it may appear to like God experiences like different emotions. Like for example, like at one time in the Bible, God experiences like regret for like creating. Um, maybe like it's sometimes he's mad at Israel. Sometimes he loves Israel and it just kind of depends. So how would you like make sense of these different passages? And we're not going to like drill into like all of these because there's so much here. Uh, but, like how do you make sense of these kind of ideas when looking at the biblical data? Caleb? Yeah. So that gets tricky. So like I, for one, don't take a lot of the Old Testament literally. So, and I'm already going to approach it with that hermeneutics so when i'm coming across some of these passages i'm going to look at it more as like a narrative like well if you're telling a story or something you know you're going to place it's going to be more natural to um place god in the narrative like he's learning something or like his emotions are changing but like you know a lot of christians will say well we maybe shouldn't take some of those notions literally 
So that's how I'm going to approach some of those things as well. God doesn't literally change an emotion, but it makes sense. But he he responds as if there's a change. So like if he's going to say, well, you should be held accountable for X, it might also say like, well, God was angered. But it's more of how he's responding um, in a way as if it's anger, but it's he doesn't literally become angry. And I don't think that much is lost if we approach it in that way. I mean, there there are certainly other accommodations in the text describing God with like body parts and stuff, and that's you know not going to be taken literally. So, so before the flood, um, there's a specific example of like God experiencing like regret of like creating the earth because it's so evil. I believe it's before the flood. If I'm wrong, someone please correct me. Um, so like, how would you make sense of that? Would you say that like a similar story is what you're talking about here with regards to like making sense of that idea? Yeah, so I'm not going to interpret the flood story as like pure history either. And that's going to get into another, you know, topic altogether. But yeah, I'm going to look at that more as a narrative. Um, like I, like in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't think like God has, like I think there's a pastor where he says, well, I'm going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and see what's happening, something like that. And it's like, well, I'm not going to take that in a purely literal fashion. So you know, when I'm looking at some of these, I, I look at them more as like narrative devices. Okay, that's great. Um, another topic I'd love to explore, Caleb, is the idea of like classical theism and like God creating. Um, so we have this question of say like God has no change um, in the events of his life. Um, but it seems like under classical, so that's classical theism in a sense, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But it seems like when we look at like the idea of like the creation of the universe, God at one point like exists alone, not creating. And then he goes from not creating to creating, which would imply maybe like some succession in like the act of God um, where he goes from like not creating to creating, which seems like could be a problem with classical theism. And obviously like we need God creating the universe and under Christian theism, like this is obviously like an important part of Christianity and the idea that like God could have not created seems like also an important part of Christian theology. So a lot there, but like, how would you kind of unpack that Caleb? Yeah. So the traditional uh, classical theist response on creation is that God carries out his act of creation and all of his acts as one eternal, you know, timeless act. So he does it from, from all eternity. Now he could have chosen not to. Some classical theists will argue that given God's, you know, nature, um, he would definitely create, not because he's forced by something outside of him, but because of his, um, his love and his diffusiveness, he's going to inevitably create. But regardless of the point there, uh, but yeah, he, he's going to timelessly carry out the, the action. So he, he could have, in, in my view, he could have chosen not to, but he's still, um, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily see a, see a conflict. Now, there are some difficulties, but in terms of God, you know, changing, I would say you know, it's an action, but I would argue that the very, um, carrying out an action doesn't necessarily require a change in God's substance, because I would argue God's substance or his being is distinct from his action. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that, that's helpful, Caleb. So like, would you say then like that God had like the ability to do otherwise, like he could have created like a different world or not created at all. Like you're fine with like affirming that kind of like view. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So one thing that like, um, Ibn Sina argued, um, an Islamic philosopher, is he found this 
really hard to understand, like this idea of like God going from not creating to creating under classical theism. So he, just, he said that like God has just eternally been creating. He's always been creating. Um, it was his kind of view. So do you think that like, there, like how would you kind of solve like it been seen this dilemma of like this idea, like you talked about it a little bit, but maybe you want to give a little more like detail and flesh it out. Yeah. So it depends. So it could be that God being a timeless creator. I mean, it does seem to plausibly follow that, um, God has always been in the act of creating. Now we say always, it would be one timeless instant, but that creation then, you know, metaphysically speaking, would always create, but that would still be compatible with one understanding of creation ex nihilo because creation would still be from the, the act of God. Now, I don't know that there's necessarily a strict contradiction, though, between God eternally creating and creation having a beginning point. I don't know that and as a temporal beginning point. I don't know that there's necessarily a contradiction there. But even if there is, um, yeah, it would still be compatible with an understanding of creation ex nihilo. So like Catherine Rogers argues that, for example, like creation ex nihilo is the view that God is the, the source of being of everything, not necessarily that there ever was a metaphysical moment that creation doesn't exist. But... There's, there are different ways to approach it, but but yeah, that is a dilemma that um, that arises. So you could say that like there's like one eternal like act of God. Um, this includes everything He's like going to do. Um, but at the same time, you could like affirm like creation next to Nilo because you could say like that's part of like that that one divine act. Yeah. So like creation next Nilo, you could say like the essence of that doctrine is that all of creation is from God. Like God is the source of everything. So even though creation metaphysically speaking eternally has always been sourced by god it still is entirely from god and he is the the um, originator source of everything and like that that's really all that you need some will argue now some will argue no there had to have been a temporal moment when or a metaphysical moment when creation did not exist and it was only god and like I said, I'm not sure that that necessarily follows, but it is plausible. So it does it does come down to intuition about you know what you think is required for creation ex nihilo, and, and you know mm. whether how that's going to align with divine timelessness. Yeah, that's helpful, Caleb. So maybe another thing we could look at here is like um, maybe like divine impassibility and the idea of like so as like Christians we want to say that like God like interacts in the world. Um, and you like that certain things like as a Catholic, you would Caleb would say like at the Eucharist at the miracle every time um, the priest, sorry, my Catholic understanding is not the best. Um, every time the priest says the prayer or something, um, the the bread and the wine turns like Jesus' flesh and blood. And like most Christians would say that, like God interacts in the world and there's experiences of him and things like this. Um, but it seems like like at one time in my life, maybe like God, I didn't experience God, but another time like God chooses to come experience me. So in the same sense of like miracles, it seems like they come at like, or like religious experiences, they come at like different durations, different points of time. Um, so how would you make sense of that under like classical theism where God has like one eternal act? He's not going from like doing one thing and he's like, oh, shoot, I got to get over to Boston to do the next thing. Um, it's like, how would you make sense of that under classical theism? Right. So one way that can help understanding this is that um, with God being timeless, he's going to be causally present to all spatial moments, but also all temporal moments. So he's causally sustaining, you know, someone in Boston, but he's also causally sustaining somebody in the year, you know, 2050. So mm -hmm. if he's going to be willing, you know, to 
change the the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ at Mass. He's going to be, you know, bringing that about at this point in time and space. And then, um, you know, he's he's willing everything at once. Now, that view of time is controversial. So that would be like an eternalist view of time. Or like some people might associate that with like a B theory of time. I'm not totally convinced that that is the correct view of time, but I do think that it's helpful in thinking about classical theism. It does seem to mesh better with classical theism, but hopefully that at least kind of makes sense. Like God, in the same sense that God is creating everything from all eternity, he's also bringing about all miracles from all eternity. Everything he does, he's doing all at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's the idea of like there's this one divine act where God um, is doing all these different things that he's going to do over the course of like human history. So that's helpful. Um, maybe one more thing. This wasn't on our notes, but it might be helpful to talk about, Caleb, is the idea of like the Trinity. Um, so this was brought up. So we have classical theism where like all of God's um, like acts and parts are identical to themselves. But like, also as like the Christians, we want to hold to the idea that like God is triune. So there's like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and they're not the same. They're not this, They're not like totally like identical. Um, but it seems like then under classical theism, if all of like God's like um, essential attributes or like, parts are identical to each other, how can we make sense of having like a distinct father, a distinct son, and a distinct Holy Spirit? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Trinity is going to be, you know, difficult no matter what. And there, there are different models of the Trinity. Um, so one classical understanding coming from Thomas Aquinas and perhaps Augustine is that the Trent, the the persons of the Trinity are relations, so they're, they're relational. So the way I kind of understand this that I think can help at least reconcile it with divine simplicity is that the son is the father's unique relation with himself and the, the Holy Spirit is, is a unique relation as well. So there are three persons, but the persons themselves are derived from this unique relation within God. So God the Father has a unique relation with himself and that in itself brings about and not not creating but the traditional understanding of procession and generation brings about you know begets another person and uh, proceeds another person perspirates and that's so the 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 three persons are relations not distinct uh, parts or distinct certainly not distinct substances of god so you have the one undivided substance but then you have the three relations and that's hard to wrap our minds around but to me it, it does help make sense of simplicity and i, I think it, it can help make sense of the trinity mm. yeah that's helpful caleb um so would you say then like looking at like god being triune does like god have, like does, does each person in the trinity have their own like mind or like center of consciousness like what would you say with regards to that yeah, so it's going to depend upon one's model of the Trinity. So like under mm -hmm. social Trinitarianism, that type of model is going to want to emphasize that there are three distinct um, minds. But within the more Latin model of the Trinity, it's going to be more, um, sometimes what's called a, a oneself model. So there's one undivided mind, but there are three different um, selves or agents. I mean, all Trinitarian models are going to want to emphasize three distinct persons, but then it's, you know, how, what do you, how do you define what a person is? Mm -hmm. And I mean, there is a worry that traditional Trinitarianism doesn't want to fall into what's called partialism, where each of the persons is a different part of God. So I do think 
So if somebody's having trouble wrapping their mind around a Latin model, they should recognize, though, that this is trying to avoid that worry of partialism. So there are three. Each of the uh, persons does have a mind. They just all partake of the same mind, which is the mind of God. Um, but they are three. What makes them distinct is that they're different agents. So if you say, do they have their own mind? I would say they have their own mind, but they do have a, a distinct relation within the mind. And again, that's hard to grasp. I can't really say more than that. But that, that's kind of where my thinking is at. And I think that that's at least one way to approach it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm definitely, I don't really have my mind made up on like, how we can make sense of classical theism and Christianity. I don't think it's impossible, but I, like, you know, like part of the reason having you on is to help me like think through these things. Um, and hopefully everyone listening or is going to listen is going to help them think through it as well. So yeah, I appreciate that a lot, Caleb. And thinking about like God and like the Trinity being like an idea of some sort of like relations, definitely something to like think about. Um, I have to think about that more because I haven't, it's a hard topic to think about. So anything else you want to talk about with regards to like classical theism and Christianity, Caleb? Because I feel like we, we ran all the bases and we kind of got the main points you want to discuss here. Yeah, so there are definitely other controversial elements, and I don't want to imply that this has been exhaustive or that it's decisive or, or anything like that, but sometimes it gets brought up like a classical theism is not really found within the biblical text, and rather it's more like a idea of Greek philosophy, and certainly mm -hmm. Greek philosophy has influenced classical theism, and I don't think that's a, a bad thing. It's just the early Christians saw Greek philosophy as a great tool in understanding metaphysics, and they wanted to embrace those tools and apply them to, you know, the biblical narrative. So they're drawing upon all things um, that they find to be helpful and such. But I think that the idea that classical theism can't be derived at all from the biblical narrative, I'm not sure that that is correct. So one verse that I think can be suggestive is James uh, chapter 1, verse 17, which um, says, Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And I'm not saying that that proves classical theism, but it definitely seems to suggest a kind of classical theist connotation of perhaps simplicity and timelessness and such. So um, I do think that... There, there could be a suggestion. And then um, there is also consideration of, you know, God's uh, name being I am, and there are different ways to translate it and such. But, um, and then Jesus applies that to himself as well, like in John eight fifty eight, and the idea of I am being, you know, one unchanging state, or at least it seems to suggest that, also seems to have classical theist connotations. So, there is some support that one can derive from the biblical text that may suggest a classical model of God. That's super helpful. So thanks for um, clarifying and bringing that up, Caleb. Um, this went a little bit faster than I anticipated, but I mean, like, it's super great because I think we kind of hit a lot of the main issues. And um, yeah, something you want to say? Well, there, yeah, sorry. There's one other point I want to emphasize. So also from, so sometimes... I think that some of this debate can get overblown because somebody who's like maybe a Roman Catholic or a Thomist or both is going to think like the classical theist model of God is, you know, the definite way that somebody has to go. If you don't go that way and understanding God, then you're collapsing into heresy or you're making God into a creature. And I think that's going overblown. I don't think like that non-classical theist models of God are necessarily um, inc or incoherent or 
intellectually bankrupt or whatever at all. But then the, on the other side, there are some neoclassical theists that think classical theism makes God impersonal and takes away everything, you know, or too much of what the biblical text is saying. And I don't like that approach. So I think both sides have um, plausible contributions. And I try to kind of find a middle ground where I'm, I try to um, recognize the insights from both sides. But if sometimes I think some are wondering, well, why would anybody even want to have a classical theist model of God. And obviously, if somebody's a Roman Catholic, there's going to be motivation because, you know, the Catholic Church, at least traditionally, seems to uh, teach a classical conception. But um, one plausible intuition that I find to motivate classical theism is the idea that if we imagine God as a unlimited being or, you know, metaphysically unlimited being, he's not going to be limited by space and time or physical or metaphysical parts, I think it is going to plausibly follow then that he's going to be simple and timeless. So I do, I'm not saying that proves classical theism, but to my mind, that is a plausible um, metaphysical consideration that could point us in favor of classical theism. So I just want to point that out that that, that could be an independent reason one could have for embracing classical theism. Mm, that was the only other thing I wanted to add. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think it's helpful in these conversations just to remember, like, you don't have to, like, condemn all the other sides as, like, irrational and you can really, like, search for truth. Like, there's um, a lot of value in what people that disagree with you have to say. And I know you value that and I value that. And I'm sure a lot of people, hopefully listening, um, do value that as well. So thanks, Caleb. I really appreciate um, this time and really valued this conversation and gave me a lot to think about. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thank you everyone for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. Hope you found it valuable. Caleb's channel is just added in that YouTube title. So you can go check it out. Really great channel. A lot of great content. Really enjoy what Caleb does. Um, if you're new here, I always encourage you to like, subscribe, um, all that fun stuff. Really appreciate your support of the channel as we keep on going. Um, if you guys can come to Patreon, patreon.com. So yeah, Caleb, thanks for coming on today. It's been such a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. All right. And bye everyone. Have a good rest of your day. God bless.